You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Welcome all to this, another Christian Humanist podcast, episode 146.1. I'm your host this week. I'm David Grubbs, a professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas in McPherson, Kansas. Uh, With me today is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How goes things in the deepest of the South, Nathan? I'm doing pretty well. I'm officially on, uh, not spring break, but fall break. Uh, which, of course, for an academic means that I am reading for research projects and grading papers, but at least I don't have to commute into the office. Fantastic. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to fall break, and in, 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 I think more than the students are, actually. <laughs> so, uh, if you didn't catch the number, dear listeners, uh, 146.1, well, you know, that point one. Um, uh, helps you understand that this particular episode is a, a Trinitarian uh, heresy of sorts. We have divided the persons. Um, Michael Farmer, who is our Holy Spirit, our, the Son, I, I don't know which one he is. There is a time when Farmer is not, and it's right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, that means we are a decimal. Um, our topic this week is if you listen to last week, the one that we promised but didn't manage to pull off a couple of episodes ago, which is a feedback episode. We've uh, Our email has been piling up. Our blog comments have been piling up. And so today we need to address some of those. Right. Well, uh, any housekeeping or just jump right into it? Uh, I'd say, well, yeah, I'll, I'll go and do a little bit of housekeeping. First of all, uh, Christian Feminist Podcast just released a really good episode on Christina Rossetti. I strongly recommend our listeners head over to that field and give it a listen. Awesome. That field, that feed, there we go, and give it a listen. Also, <laughs> if you've not checked out uh, Book of Nature yet, you really should. And I'll go ahead and say that uh, we've been hitting a pretty steady stride uh, with Christian Humanist Profiles. Uh, we're up to, I believe, 15 episodes, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been very good, very interesting interviews. Uh, they've been conducted by Grubbs, of course, and Farmer and Danny Anderson and myself so far. And we've got upcoming interviews with uh, some fairly prominent figures in uh, the Christian academic world uh, by Victoria Farmer and by Todd Pedler. So uh, that feed, I mean, for my money, is the one that's doing some really interesting and worth listening to things here lately. Go give it a listen, listeners. Indeed. I mean, that's, that's what you're good at, listeners. Listening. Yes. <laughs> that's, why you, that's why we call you that. <laughs> though, though, in this particular episode, we treat you, the dear listener, as the speaker. Right. S- sort of, via text. Anyway. Mm-hmm. And we do the oh. release in different voices. 
<laughs> All right. Transitioning to our actual content. Uh, you're up first, Nathan. What's, what you got? All right. We're leading off with an email from Josh Nisley. Dear Christian Humanist, your re- recent discussion about Tertullian, Universal Guilt, and Grace made me aware that even after hearing your closing line well over a hundred times, I still don't understand what it means to let my sins be strong, but my faith stronger. I understand that Luther was not advocating grace through faith as a license to sin like the Dickens, but I'm not sure how to interpret it differently. I would welcome some discussion, an episode perhaps, about this statement and its greater context. What is Luther saying? What is he not saying? How is it important enough to your project to bear repeating every week? Well, I don't know if we're going to do an episode on it, uh, but I am happy to talk about it now. Uh, that is a line uh, from a letter that Martin Luther wrote to Philip Melanchthon. Uh, the question on the table seems to have been, as I remember, and Grubbs, you're obviously free to correct me when I get done here, uh, Melanchthon's worry that uh, there might not be any sense in which a human action can really be good. Mm. Uh, so he's worried that, you know, given the doctrine of total depravity, which of course doesn't mean that everything is entirely bad, but that everything is tainted by sin, uh, that therefore there is no sense that, you know, the act of a human being can be something good and therefore something that pleases God. And Luther's response is typical Luther, uh, be a sinner and let your sins be strong, uh, but let your faith in Christ be even stronger and realize you're saved. And I'm paraphrasing there. David might have the text in front of him, but I don't. Uh, And, you know, the... The message there, and the reason that I wanted to put that uh, at the end of the episode, you know, other than it's some hardcore stuff to say before I shoot somebody, uh, (laughs) is that, you know, I think that this notion that we really ought to be honest about naming the sinful structures of our existence uh, is something I try to take seriously in my own research, in my own writing, certainly in my own teaching. Uh, But I think one of the things that makes teaching in a Christian college environment, and one of the things that makes being a Christian intellectual different uh, is that it is an open system rather than a closed system. One of the things I uh, that makes me most frustrated with a writer like Michel Foucault, for instance, is that for him it is a closed system of power relationships one-upping each other. It's kind of like the circle of thieves in Dante's Inferno. Uh, there are no, there are, there are never going to be enough bodies to go around, so you just got to snatch somebody else's. Uh, and on the other hand, you know, Christian theology opens up the hope of the eschaton, and therefore what we do as intellectuals, our inquiries and our investigations, can actually head towards something hopeful so long as we acknowledge that we ourselves do not provide the matter for hope. Mm. So, David, I just gave a long speech. What do you got to say, man? (laughs) Well, I I don't have the whole letter in front of me, but I do have... um the fuller version of the quote, which mm-hmm. incidentally is uh, on the Luther mug at our Zazzle store. Oh, yes. Oh, David, you you just did the uh, advertising that I forgot to do. Well played. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't that cool? Uh, be a sinner. And also, by the way, folks, I, I have to note this. Uh, if uh, Stan <laughs> Harawas does any photo ops in the near future, look in his office. There might be a Martin Luther Christian Humanist mug somewhere. So this, this is your Easter egg hunt now. <laughs> awesome. So the the fuller quote, be a sinner and let your sins be strong, but let your faith in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. 
so that there's it, it is you know as you said it's definitely pointing pointing the Christian towards uh, well it, being honest about self yeah you are a sinner uh, but also pointing the Christian to somewhere else for hope or someone else for hope namely namely Christ who is the victor over sin death in the world mm-hmm. and and uh, you know f- uh, to pull the line from that psalm that the New Testament loves quoting, um, all of Christ's enemies have not yet been put under his feet, mm-hmm. but we look forward to the time when they will be, and one of those enemies is uh, is sin, including our own. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were talking about this uh, before, Nathan, in the episode that recorded terribly in the lost episode yeah <laughs> in the lost episode uh listening to you um uh, i had a thought about this uh, about this quote and it was the word let and that uh, in some contexts you can you can use this kind of phrasing let this be so but let this be so mm-hmm. uh as a not not a statement of permission but rather a statement of uh Systematic axioms. Yes, gr- you know, grant that this is true, mm-hmm. but also grant that this is true. Let your argument, let your thinking, let your let your reasoning on this topic not only be shaped by this one axiom. Let your mm-hmm. sins be strong. Grant, granted, your sins are strong, but also grant that faith in Christ is stronger because Christ is stronger. Right, right. Any of our listeners who have done some computer program pro- programming hopefully recognize that structure. You know, this is the uh, beginning of a program where you assign values to your various variables. Yep. So, uh, of the variables in your life, yes, sin is a strong variable, but mm-hmm. Christ is always the strongest variable. Yes, indeed. All right, very good. Well, David, what else we got? Well, let's, this is a little email from Benjamin Mathers. Greetings, Christian humanist. I've recently found your podcast and listened to it in abundance on my long trip from Minneapolis to Illinois and back. Keep up the good work. I just wanted to give my input and suggest an episode focusing on the works of Robert Louis Stevenson. When I first read Jekyll and Hyde, I was surprised by how much of a mystery novel it was, seeing as how popular culture has essentially simplified it to a knockoff Incredible Hulk, which mm-hmm. to be fair, this is me talking now, uh, to be fair, actually, Incredible Hulk is more of a knockoff Jekyll and Hyde. Right, and an allegory about nuclear energy. Yes, also that. <laughs> uh, I also remember the story Kidnapped as... Uh, has my favorite scene from any book wherein a potential sword fight is quelled by a bagpipe duel, which is awesome. (laughs) That was one of the few times a book had me laughing out loud. Aside from these, Stevenson also had very interesting short stories, The Body Snatcher and Suicide Club being two that come to mind. I found the latter more entertaining. Anyway, just my two cents. Sincerely, Yeah, so how much Stevenson have you read, Nathan? Oh, goodness. I read some Stevenson, I mean, probably 20 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've read Jekyll and Hyde. I've reread Jekyll and Hyde more recently. But uh, if we did a Stevenson episode, uh, I would need some lead time so I could re-familiarize myself with that corpus. How about mm-hmm. you? I read a lot of Stevenson when I was younger. He was one of the major 
he, he was one of the major figures in my literary pantheon. Mm-hmm. Um, loved Treasure Island. Uh, I loved Kidnapped. Uh, Alan Breck Stewart was probably uh, the sort of the crazy Jacobite that kicks around with David Balfour in that novel was probably one of my favorite characters ever. Um, Master, uh, Master of Ballantry, I think is... I think that's the title of one that I read. Very, very interesting. Uh, Black Arrow, Jekyll and Hyde. I think I've read The Suicide Club, but I have no memory of it, probably okay. because I looked it up when I was a kid and I was hoping for more pirates. <laughs> and it didn't have them. Right, anyway, right. yeah, I've read a lot of Stevenson, but it's been, you know, uh, as with you, Nathan, it's been a long time ago. I wonder how much Michael's read. Anyway. We'll have to ask him. Well, and... You know, if worse comes to works, Benjamin, um, I can always just make Michael read some. Right, right. I mean, or, I mean, we could do an episode on Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, it's one of those things, you know, uh, yeah. as, as Benjamin just reminded us, I mean, there are a number of stories in our own moment that are departures from Jekyll and Hyde in various ways. True enough, true enough. I All mean, right. Fight Club immediately comes to mind. I mean, it drops an explicit... Jekyll and Hyde reference in there. Hmm. All right, we're, this one's going to have to percolate, percolate, Benjamin. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if, if I'll, I'll put it this way, Benjamin, if if Grubbs doesn't do a Jekyll and Hyde episode, I just might. <laughs> awesome. What you got, Nathan? All right, this one comes from uh, Andrew Hartwig. Dear Nathan, Michael, and David, my name is Andrew Hartwig, and I'm an enormous fan of the show. I've been listening for about three years now. I've worked through all the available episodes and always look forward to the new episodes each week. I'm from just outside Brisbane, Australia. I've studied English in undergrad and became a high school teacher after that. I've been splitting my time between teaching high school English and working with teenagers in residential care. I'm currently working towards moving to Canada to do graduate study in theology, so I'm sure you can imagine how nicely... The show aligns with my interests. Yes, indeed. I mainly wanted to write to tell you how much I appreciate the show and how much I enjoy listening each week. I also have a few suggestions for episodes. I'd love to hear you guys talk about the following. Jazz, China, Russia, Arvo Part, Andre Tarkovsky, Ingmar Bergman, Marilyn Robinson, Race, Pentecostalism, Australia, and he finishes his email with, thanks again for producing such consistently excellent shows. Regards, Andrew. Uh, so it's interesting. Marilyn Robinson, actually, uh, our press liaison, Kristen Philippic, has been uh, trying to persuade me to pitch a, tri- a, a trilogy on Marilyn Robinson to you guys because the uh, third Gilead novel is in the works. Or, mm. or maybe it's already gone to press. I can't remember which. My apologies, Kristen. I, I did read your email, but I've forgotten it. Uh, (laughs) but first of all, it's great to hear from listeners who are, you know, finding us a good fit for their interest. David, looking down that list of, uh, subject matters, I mean, which ones do you reckon we might do? Which ones will we probably not do? Mm. I, I'm, I'm kind of looking through it and thinking what, what on earth, what on earth could I talk about? Jazz would be fun, but I, I feel like Michael would probably be doing most of the talking. Yeah, one of us would probably have to write up the show notes and kind of tee him up and let him go to town on that. Yeah, um, if Andrew would be content with an episode about kung fu movies and tr- and, and consider that <laughs> as having done China. Um, right. 
yeah. in China, I mean, that that's a <laughs> series of episodes, not an episode. Because, I mean, I can imagine an episode on the Tao Te Ching, an episode on the Analects, right. an episode on Kung Fu movies, an episode on, you know, the, the Maoist Cultural Revolution. Um, yeah, I mean, China, obviously, I mean, just lends itself to all sorts of interesting episodes. An episode on sweet and sour pork. <laughs> Um, in which we chew on our sweet and sour pork for 45 minutes and let the listeners enjoy. Go. <laughs> uh, Russia, uh, you guys have read far more in that in that area than I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, then of the specific names, the only one that I'm really registering with is is playing chess with death, and Ingmar Bergman. Mm-hmm. Um, race Hart and Tarkovsky, I believe, are composers. Okay. Uh, race. Oh, Lordy. Um, well, I mean, we, we, it's, it's kind of something that we've talked about in other contexts, but never done kind of a, a single episode on it. Right, right. And, I, and I'm just going to be real honest, Andrew. I've been once bitten, twice shy here recently about Internet discussions of race. Um, ah, I mean, if, if one of the other guys wrote up an episode on it, they would drag me you know, maybe not kicking and screaming, but certainly grumbling and cursing into that episode. <laughs> uh, what about Pentecostalism? Oh, boy, it's where I teach. Uh, <laughs> beyond that, I mean, uh, you know, we could do something about the history of Pentecostalism. I think that might be mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, I don't know how much, I mean, uh, direct experience you two have with Pentecostalism uh, to where we could do an episode, but it's possible. Yeah. Uh, Australia? I mean, I'm just going to go ahead and say that my that my my Australian cultural expertise is mainly limited to the crocodile hunter and the Wiggles. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll see you, uh, crocodile hunter and the Wiggles, and raise you, crocodile Dundee. So I... <laughs> we would need to do some research for that, Andrew. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, I I, I think we could do an episode maybe on the film uh, Rabbit Proof Fence with uh, Kenneth Branagh. I mean, that's a a fascinating phenomenon of sort of the late colonial period where, you know, I mean, the the shift from, I guess, assimilating colonized cultures to actually breathing them into extinction. I mean, it's, it's a horrifying concept, and I mean, that movie really kind of brings that concept across in a way that's pretty powerful. So that that's something mm. that I, I immediately thought of when I saw Australia as a po- possible subject matter. And probably more edifying than an episode on the Wiggles. <laughs> Although, Australian children's TV, uh, my daughter just loves it. So, uh, not just the Wiggles, but I mean, there's a whole constellation <laughs> of uh, Australian children's television available on Netflix that she just eats up. So, I don't think Michael's going to want to do an episode on that. But <laughs> if we do another <laughs> point one, David, <laughs> let's keep this in mind. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> All um, right, David. Uh, well, won't you give us some notion of what uh, Jeff Veach has given us because he has given us much? Yes, yes. When Jeff Veach gives, he gives with both hands generously. <laughs> uh, dear CHP, thanks for the podcast on the suburbs. I need to take David to task. Oh, that's my favorite clause of any sentence. Um. <laughs> I need to take David to task as I'm currently working on a PhD. 
on the cuts on the concept of neighborhoods in Ostia Antica, Rome, from the second and fifth century CE, in both archaeology and ancient history, at the University of Kent, Canterbury. I should add that that I live in London, in the area where the Canterbury Tales begins. Neat. Mm-hmm. That said, the herbs, which was always in reference to Rome, was the built-up area of Rome, even though the walls defined the perimeter. It usually did not correspond only to the walls of the city, as the Servian Wall encompassed a limited area by the time of Augustus. By the time Augustus reorganized the regions of the city, seven regions were inside the walls and seven were outside. At this time, there were around a million inhabitants in Rome. The Sibura was a named region of the city between the Viminal and Esquiline Hills. This was an area within the center of the city, and the main through route was later incorporated into the Forum 97 CE by Domitian. Um, so anyway, basically, uh, Jeff is, as he says, taking me to task <laughs> for my uh, uh, inaccurate and, uh, well, imprecise and woefully inaccurate description of Roman suburbs as being those things outside the walls. Uh, as he has pointed out, the city proper was not contained by the walls, and the town and the the term which I took to be more general of suburb, in fact, actually referred to a very specific region. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, Jeff, uh, you have discovered what uh, all of our specialist listeners discover whenever we English folks wander out of our backyard, <laughs> which is that while we try to do our best, we still don't understand your toys, mm-hmm. and so we'll play badly. Um. <laughs> right, and I'll just add as a, as a side note to that that a, uh, we have another classicist listener, Alex P., uh, who often takes me to the woodshed uh, in the blog comments. So, listeners, if you're interested in seeing another classicist, note the the uh, <laughs> obvious deficiencies in our classical education. Uh, go to the blog and look for comments by Alex P. Yes. Well, oh uh, well. Uh, in 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 my in my meager defense, um, yeah, my everything I said about suburbs in Rome in that suburb episode was mainly derived from an Oxford English Dictionary etymology section, mm-hmm. combined with dim memories of Roman urbanity, and my assumption that the medieval Londoners were using that Latin word in a similar way to the Romans, which right. turned out to be wrong. <laughs> so. So there right. you go. But on the other hand, and, I, and I'm going to play, I'm going to do the silver lining thing here, David. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, Jeff Veach just had an opportunity to produce a discourse on the Sabura region of of Imperial Rome, early Imperial Rome, which you know, without a context in which to do such, when would he have the opportunity? <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're welcome. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> exactly. You should be thanking us. Jeff Veach. <laughs> yep. Well, and and just general note, listeners, uh, everything is always more complicated than than we can properly represent in our episodes. Oh, absolutely. And you know, all three <laughs> of us, and I, I won't even say all three of us. I mean, now that we are a podcast network, uh, all seventeen of us—that's probably not the right number—but I'm making one up. Uh, you know, we're all learning as we go. That's kind of the point of this project. So we love when you write us emails, uh, providing the fruit of your specialization. So keep it up. Yep. Brilliant. Nathan. 
Well, speaking of people taking us to task, uh, Jonathan Reibsman <laughs> uh, writes another email. Uh, hello, humanists. I'm still enjoying your podcast, as I always have, and I'm looking forward to the Book of Nature podcast very much. Thank you for your tireless efforts at bringing intelligent conversation to the masses. And I'll hit that with my usual, usual stupid joke. No, I actually get quite tired. Uh, now, back to the email. I just listened to your <laughs> Proofs of God episode, and while I enjoyed it, as I do all your episodes, well, nearly all, nobody's perfect, a couple of points <laughs> seemed in error to me, so I thought I'd ask you about them. Uh, first, it was claimed more than once in the episode that Thomas, quote, rejected, unquote, the ontological argument. However, on my reading, he actually claims that it's a good argument for those who understand what God means, but would be lost on those who don't grasp the concept of God. That's why he says that the proposition God exists is self-evident, as the ontological argument is supposed to show in itself, but isn't self-evident to those who, for whatever reason, lack an appropriate concept of God. So he rejects it only in the sense that he thinks it's going to seem fallacious to those who don't have an adequate concept of God. So he sets it aside in favor of arguments that don't depend on one having an adequate concept of God, but he doesn't reject it in the sense of claiming that it's a bad argument on its own terms. And the Summa Theologica is, after all, written as a textbook for beginners in theology. Now, a quick parenthetical note he tacks onto there. You may notice he says that the existence of God isn't self-evident to us, and so think that he means that the ontological argument isn't good argument for anyone at all, even, in, even if in itself it might be valid. But he seems to be saying to us, given what's been said about God so far in this text, since the essence of God has yet to be discussed in the text of the Summa at this point. Again, he's assuming the reader is a beginning theology student, so he hasn't yet spent sufficient time de developing an adequate mental concept of God as required to understand the ontological argument. Uh, so he wants to know, what do we think? Is there reason uh, to think that Ribesman's reading is wrong and he really does reject the argument, or do we stand corrected? And I'm going to pause there, David. Um, you are a much better reader of Thomas than I am, so I'm going to uh. let you respond to this. Uh. <laughs> Oi. Um, on one hand, uh, yeah, in, um, you know, in, in our article one of question two, he does say that there are, there are two ways in which, um, the statement that the it, it, there are two way there are two ways in which this argument is is self evident um, as as any statement can be self evident he says a thing can be self evident in two ways um, he Thomas on the one hand it can be self evident in itself though not to us and on the other self evident in itself and to us um, a proposition is self evident because the predicate is included in the essence of the subject. Man is an animal. For an animal, for animal is contained in the essence of man. Therefore, the essence of the predicate, if therefore the essence of the predicate and the subject be known to all, the proposition will be self-evident to all. Right? Mm -hmm. So, so if the essence is understood by those who hear the statement, that self-evident statement will be understood. But, if there are some to whom the essence of the predicate and subject is unknown, the, propos the proposition will be self-evident in itself because the predicate is contained in the essence. 
but not to those who do not know the meaning of the predicate and the subject of the proposition. So those who don't understand the essence of the thing or the predication that's being made will not see the self-evidential, self-evidentiation of uh, nature of the, uh, of the statement itself. Okay. So, uh, in, uh, Reibsman, uh, in his reading of that, he's saying, well, if, if someone just understands God better, um, then, then it would be self-evident to them. And, and I'll grant that. But in article two, uh, Thomas takes up the question whether it can be demonstrated that God exists. And in that article, he, he comes back to this idea of, of, of essence and argues that, that's, that, that God, um, God's essence is, is, uh, inaccessible in some sense by natural reason. Um, and this is this is my reading of it. If if I've got it wrong, then 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 he can write us back and say, "Hey, you 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 screwed that up too." <laughs> um, uh, in in other words, that that God's essence is in some sense um, not not something that that we have access to. So, a priori or arg- arguments. Um, from the cause, um, which he would, uh, which the ontological argument works from that direction, um, doesn't work because uh, knowledge of God's essence is not something that's immediately accessible to us. Mm-hmm. But a, a posteriori or uh, arguments from effect can be made. So because of the because of the mysteriousness of God's essence to the unaided human reason, the unaided human reason is not going to find the ontological argument. And this is, this is my reading uh, is not going to find the ontological argument self-evident. It can't, it needs, it needs revelation about the essence. And so, you know, I would say that what Thomas is, 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 is doing here is saying there are limits to what, there are limits to what the logic can do. Mm. Um, so, anywho's that's that that's that that's my take. I think it's it's you know I I appreciate his his point that yeah Thomas doesn't completely ditch it, but I think he is a little more cautious about its use. Right, right, and it's one of those things where, again, the I, I guess the caution that I see Thomas encouraging here. Uh, is that you know within an Aristotelian organon understanding understanding of logic, uh, logic seems to deal mainly with matters of finitude rather than infinity, mm. and you know to uh, I, I guess to make superlative things predicates as Anselm does, uh, that makes Thomas a little bit antsy about it, and he says, okay, if we've already got the concept of divine infinity in place. Sure, it works, but I'm not sure if that really fits within an Aristotelian logical system. I mean, is that is that a fair paraphrase of of some some of the stuff you've been getting at, David? Right. Yeah. I, I think I think what Thomas is saying is, what can we establish by means of these arguments? Mm-hmm. Not what not what things once we know them in some sense 
arguments can be made about them. Yeah. But mm-hmm. but what things what things can we establish by them? Right, right. So, yeah. Woo. Yeah, and I mean, I, this, this, this question had me reaching for my uh, Aristotelian logical treatises because woo I <laughs> um, also yeah, it's I mean, what now? You know, also, it's before eight in the morning for both of us, so it is. <laughs> um, yeah, which makes Aristotelian logic even more difficult than it already is. <laughs> Aristotle and Thomas before breakfast. Thanks. Yes, yes. We we read more Aristotle before breakfast than most people do all day. <laughs> all the listeners of a certain age are going to get that one. All right. Uh, now, going on with Jonathan's email. Second, the explanation of the argument of the first way seemed flawed since it was characterized as a cosmological argument, much like the Kalam argument defended by William Lane Craig. Uh, in other words, that any movement or change... Uh, must have had a temporally prior cause of change, and that cause must itself have had a temporally prior cause, and so on and so forth, and that this chain can't go back infinitely in time, therefore there must have been a first cause that is not itself caused by anything else, or, to put it another way, an unmoved mover. But that can't be what Thomas has in mind, since he famously doesn't think that the world can be proved to have had a beginning, he thinks we only know that the world was created in the infinite, in the finite past, pardon me, by revelation. The doctrine of creation in the finite past is a truth of faith and not a truth of reason, according to Thomas. But he still thinks that an infinite regress of causes of change isn't possible, even if an infinite past is possible. To say why this is gets us further into medieval metaphysics of causation than I am qualified to explain, and it probably would take too long to explain to us moderns or even postmoderns anyway. But whatever Thomas is doing in that argument, it's not the Kalam cosmological argument, as it seemed to me you all were interpreting it to be. Uh, so uh, he, he ends his email saying, thanks again for all your work on the show, so you're welcome, Jonathan. Uh, but to address the content of this one, uh, one of the things that, first of all, I mean, I just want to talk about the nature of our show uh, that question I pitched to Michael so that he could give us a quick overview of the five arguments. Uh, and Michael, you know, his reading of the first three is that they are all basically synonymous. Now, if I were summarizing them, I probably would have drawn somewhat more uh, distinct divisions between them. Uh, but we were running with what Michael did, and I think Michael did a fine job. Uh, making the case that, in fact, they could be read as synonymous with each other. What mm-hmm. Jonathan here is doing is doing a more uh, differentiated argument of the three. And, and listeners, I, I, I think that uh, that's a good counter to the way that we treated them. All right. Now, that said, I, I you know, I just want to once again say that I agree with Jonathan that, you know, the uh, the finitude or the infinity of temporal extension uh, is something that Thomas doesn't really put to a test of philosophical reason so much as revealed doctrine. Mm. Uh, so I think that his objection here is a good one. David, would you add anything to that? Oh yeah. Just the my, Michael's point was that especially the, 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 the first two ways mm-hmm. um, and the Kalam argument have in common um, the impossibility of an infinite regress. Yeah. And so infinite regress of movement or motion, infinite regress of causes, and those are Thomas's first two ways, and then Kalam argument, infinite regress of moments in time. 
Mm-hmm. But all, all, all three of them are based on that same fundamental um, principle that an infinite regress is impossible. The characterization of the infinite regress is is different in each of those three, and and, and Jonathan's right to point those out. And and honestly, uh, I, w- I will say that it's very difficult for me when I'm talking about um, the regressive causes and the regressive motion not to t- not to slip into time language. Right, right. Because for me and the plane of existence that I live in, all motion, all causes take place within series of moments. Mm-hmm. Are there snakes on the plane? Yes, I guess. <laughs> So, so, you know, all 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 all, the, all that to say this, um, it, uh, I I am not neat enough in the way I talk about Thomas's first two ways not to slip into talking about the Kalam argument. <laughs> just, right, right. <laughs> and just yeah. as a, a general uh, advertisement for medieval theology, I mean, this is what makes it such an interesting development that really extends beyond what Plato and Aristotle were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, namely that medieval theology is contending with concepts of infinity, which were very fuzzy horizons for Plato and Aristotle, but really are the stuff of philosophy for the medievals. I mean, uh, that's what makes, I mean, really Boethius all the way up to the Paris school, all the way up into William of Ockham, such fascinating reading, uh, is that they realize that worshiping an infinite God uh, it falls to them to talk about infinity, even though the structures of human language are terribly ill-fitted to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If uh, if if I remember correctly, if Arab if Arab mathematics gave us zero, um, medieval metaphysics, uh, in some sense, gave us infinity. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Which is cool. Right, and that's why I mean. Uh, you know, even da- even though David is more a medievalist than I am and a better one, uh, I, I still will fight uh, ferociously if need be when people try to portray the Middle Ages as some period of intellectual stagnation. Uh, that just isn't the case. Uh, you know, really, I mean, if you think about modern mathematics and modern uh, quantum physics, I mean, which tends to be concerned with sort of the limits of human conceptions of number or matter or space or energy uh really the impetus for that kind of investigation comes from that medieval concern with the infinite well david we've had a couple long emails there you want to give us a short one sure yay uh this is from (laughs) longtime listener and correspondent chin belay hello uh dear humanists if one wanted to go on a christian humanist pilgrimage what shrine should be included in the journey? Your virtual friend and online student, Chin Buwei. Oh, wow. Um, Toys. <laughs> say what? Toys. <laughs> <laughs> well, how's about I name one and you name one, and we, and we kind of take turns. Good. That good? All right. Uh, the Eagle and Child, for Inkling's cred. Uh, you, that's... It, it's a place that's still in existence. It's a place where, um, from what I've heard, you can still actually sit down and have a potent potable of your choice. Um, so, so yeah, that's that's definitely a place where uh, uh, Eagle and Child in Oxford, where 
uh, Tolkien and Lewis and and Williams and other Inklings would would hang out. By all means. Excellent. Uh, I'll add to that the city of Constantinople. It is a mixture of the ancient world and the medieval world, the modern world. It is Christian and Muslim and secular. Uh, it is a fascinating place, uh, and a visit to that region more generally puts you in contact not only with some of the great monuments of the late Roman Empire, but also of early Christianity. Uh, so, so and I said Constantinople. It's actually now Istanbul. Yes, listeners, go ahead and start singing. They might be giants. Everyone does. Well, a third place you could visit, because apparently you have infinite time and money. Um, <laughs> I, I, would go, uh, I would go to Florence uh, in, in, honor, in honor of Dante. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, kick around uh, that, that lovely town and uh, stand at picturesque points whilst reading the Divine Comedy and pretending that you can see Beatrice. <laughs> Oh, goodness, we are in the age of the uh, internet photo photography. <laughs> oh, goodness, and, and I'll provide one more, and then, David, if you want the last word, you can, or we can leave it at four. Um, I would suggest, um, and I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and admit that uh, this is somewhat stereotypical, I guess, but uh, it really is a place that I would like to visit myself, and that's the Louvre in Paris. Uh, just because it's one of those things where a lot of what we do as Christian humanists, uh, we can do by reading books and by watching films and by, uh, you know, doing other things that are very portable. Uh, but one of the things that, you know, really does improve with physical proximity, uh, is to look at great sculpture and great painting. So, uh, you know, you can sub in here any of the great art museums of the world. Uh, that's just the one that I would most like to visit myself. Right. Well, to finish off, um, I, I, I suppose uh, it, I, I should I, I should get some Michael Farmer in here and All right. uh, <laughs> and 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 send you uh, send you at some point in your pilgrimage to uh, uh, to keep vigil at the tomb of Kierkegaard. There you go. <laughs> Do you know where that is by chance? Um, I'm assuming it's in Denmark. Yeah, I would have figured that as well, but I don't know for sure, so I Yeah, and well, unless he decided to, you know, just be completely completely mean and and uh have like about, you know, a dozen or so, you know, of of his uh uh, pen names as as tombs scattered around <laughs> with us in never, places, <laughs> and thus I've never have any idea of where, where where he lies in specific. You know, even if that's not true, <laughs> David, I want it to be. I... <laughs> and I mean, I, and I guess I know I said I'd stop at four, but I'm going to go to six. I mean, just to add another Michael Farmer flavored one, uh, I'd say the the and I've been going cities rather than specific places, but that's how I roll. Uh, <laughs> go to New Orleans. Uh, you know, it is, for my money, I mean, the most American city you could visit. Uh, it's it, it, it's not just the birthplace of jazz. People are still doing really great jazz there. Uh, it's a place where, I mean, you really do get this great international feel. Um, it's a great city. Uh, I actually haven't been there myself post-Katrina, but I will go on faith that it is still a remarkable place to visit. 
awesome. And and start saving your pennies because <laughs> yeah. <we're... laughs> you, you don't go to these places cheap. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we got another short one, relatively short one. Uh, this one is from Joel Welsh, and he says, Hey, Christian Humanists. I have really enjoyed listening to your show. I'm a high school English teacher from Queensland, Australia. Got a lot of Australian email here recently. I first yeah. stumbled across your podcast by doing a Google search for metamodernism and have downloaded heaps of episodes since. And I bought a couple books based on your high praise in various episodes. Phil Carey's Good News for Anxious Christians, Kreider's The Office of Assertion. So thanks for these discussions. Those are two of my favorite books. So good show, good show. A question for Nathan Gilmore. Hey, that's me. You mentioned in the Amusing Ourselves to Death episode that Postman gives an excellent defense of the essay genre in Building a Bridge to the 18th Century. I am intrigued by this. Is this a prominent argument in the book or just a couple of pages? The value of the academic essay has been at the back of my mind lately, especially as I work in the high school context where it can be disparaged. Just today I was at a conference and a slight was made at essays because they have no application or relevance in the real world. I suppose this is not a question, but just looking to see how much you would recommend this particular book. Thanks again for all the work and thought you put into the podcast. Well, Joel, um, I'll actually propose a third option, as is my want. Uh, it's not that there is a chapter on the essay genre, and it's not a passing mention, but it's really, for my ma for my money, a sort of atmospheric argument that the whole book puts together. Postman's argument in Building a Bridge to the 18th Century is that the Enlightenment and specifically its project of public literacy, uh, is something that can be an antidote to the sort of post-literate culture that he finds himself in in 1999, and which, as far as I can tell, you know, hasn't uh, become more literate in the 15 years since. So the argument that I glean from Postman uh, is that the academic essay is actually something that trains the human mind to think in certain linear uh, sequential ways that, for instance, a blog post doesn't always do, a tweet certainly doesn't do, uh, things that, you know, for instance, YouTube videos with their propensity for, you know, a sort of confessional feel tends to steer you away from. In other words, what Postman is arguing is not that the essay is a sort of universal form, uh, but rather that it is a very historically contingent form and beyond that, and this is where, you know, I would say he makes the argument for it, that it is one worth preserving. Uh, so it's one of those books that uh, I tend to hand to my own students who are heading to graduate school in English because I know that there are plenty of arguments out there for multimodal writing and for personal narrative writing. But as far as an intellectual defense of the essay, Postman offers what I would consider about the closest thing to it. And I'll go ahead and, and pitch a book that hopefully will materialize here in the next year, year and a half. But uh, I'm actually trying to bring Postman's work into conversation with a lot of other stuff for the rhetoric for Christian college professors book that I've been trying to work on for the last couple semesters. So if I can actually get my, my gluteus maximus in gear and say no <laughs> to a couple uh, Christian humanist profiles that <clears throat> long enough to actually write that book, uh, hopefully you will be able to see that argument drawn out of Postman, but articulated in my book. So, uh, David, have you ever looked at uh, Building a Bridge of the 18th Century? No, I've not read that one. It looks yeah. like I need to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I guess, you know, the uh, the praise that I would give it 
uh, and it's a praise that elevates the book and slaps myself in the face at the same time, which is my favorite sort. Uh, but if a self-identified postmodern teacher of ancient and medieval text really enjoys a book praising the Enlightenment, it's probably pretty good. <laughs> yeah, because I, I would not, if, if I was going to build a bridge to another century, it would probably not be the 18th. But No, but by the end of Postman's book, I'm convinced that we probably ought to build that bridge. Awesome. Well, this next email is uh, connected, well, uh, is, is also postman related mm -hmm. uh this is from seth porch i realized this episode was made months ago and he's writing in regards to amusing ourselves to death mm -hmm. thus showing how far behind i really am but i thought that in light of the discussion you would find this graphic representation of postman's book amusing and he has a link to uh a a cartoon which, right, which i'll try to put in the show notes i'll try to remember yeah. that listeners but uh very briefly it's uh it's a side-by-side -side comparison of uh, 1984. The imagined uh, by system of a down. Yes, the the kind of uh, <laughs> the 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 Orwell dystopia of 1984 uh, in parallel columns with the uh, Huxley dystopia of uh, Ah Brave New World. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm like looking at the words and they aren't saying themselves in my head. Right. And uh, the, the funny thing is that the dystopia of 1984 is illustrated with all these, you know, scary images. And then the the uh, brave the uh, brave new world column looks like my living room. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> and uh, yes. So so ultimately, this is, you know, this is all illustrating, you know, Postman's point that, yes, we are in the we are in the brave new world of death by amusement mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i mean and it's a nice little cartoon representation uh, representation pardon me of just how prescient uh postman's book was there in the 1980s yeah so, or it might have been early 90s i i really should have looked that up before we recorded so my apologies my apologies listeners you can tell <laughs> what what part of the semester it is can't you <laughs> yeah uh, and by the way, Seth Porch, I just want to put this in, is a former student of mine from Emanuel College who is an English minor, a fine student who is uh, currently looking at seminaries. Uh, so it's a lot of fun when uh, former students are listening to the, and current students, I don't want to denigrate uh, current students, but when students of ours listen to our little project here and enjoy it. So thanks for listening, Seth. Keep writing in. Um, let's finish up, David, with a recent iTunes review, and I wanted to bring this in just because uh, iTunes reviews are fun because they tend not to be topical. Uh, they tend to be people's uh, impressions of the show as a whole. And of course, at this point, I mean, we, we, uh, we have rolled past the five-year mark. We're into the sixth year of the project. Uh, so this review of that, you know, five-year ongoing journey that we're on is by RIH uh, Moeller22. And it was posted back in August, and the review reads thus. It's a five-star review, by the way, so listeners, uh, those who have ears, they should hear. This is not a podcast for the in-critical thinking listener. These English professors cover it all, from philosophy to pop culture, from theology to theater, Plato to Derrida, and, of course, literature. This is sure to challenge your beliefs and your personal dogmas, 
welcome to the Christian Humanist Podcast. And I love that just because, I mean, it reads like a like an advertisement. And frankly, I've, I've got a, a big enough ego that I like to be advertised. <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome. Yeah, I mean, although, I mean, you know, once he mentioned Derrida, the Derrida switch in my soul got flipped. And so when he got to personal dogmas, I started asking, you know, what would it mean for a dogma to be personal? Isn't the nature of dogma to be one that is in a relationship between the teaching party and the taught party? But <sighs> Once you turn on Derrida, it's hard to turn Derrida off, it turns out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think on that note we ought to end. Cause <laughs> You're probably right. We're just not going to be able to turn this off. All right, dear listeners, that was uh, that was our our second feedback episode. Is that correct? I think Sounds we've only done right. two. All right. Well, uh, if you if you have any feedback on feedback, or if you are also listening through listening through the backlog and and want to put in any kind of feedback or response, uh, by all means, do so. Uh, jump in the pool; the water's fine. And uh, when we have a big enough pile of mail, well, we'll do we'll do another one of these feedback episodes. Right now, I'm gonna Maybe. break protocol, David, because someone needs to ask you what's on tap for next week. Oh, right. Because <laughs> usually yeah. you're supposed to ask that to someone else, but this new numbering system, um, you know, <laughs> I, I blame the Arabs. <laughs> what's on tap for next week? Okay, uh, next week I'm going to be hosting, and uh, the the tomes will be forbidden, and the visions will be maddening. We'll be looking at some of the short fiction of H.P. Lovecraft. Awesome. Indeed. Well, in the meanwhile, and now that you understand it, uh, I'll be giving you advice from Luther, but first I need to say that I'm David Grubbs. Uh, I'm uh, wishing you all grand weeks on behalf of Nathan Gilmore and Michael Farmer in absentia. Our uh, our press liaison is Kristen uh, Philippic. Uh, our intern is Zach Schmidt. Thank you. I was going to say Snyder, and I knew that was wrong. Uh, this is the Christian Humanist Podcast. It's part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. And I will leave you with the advice of Martin Luther to let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger. So the sin-